the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. I am Seth Liebson as we head into our third and final hour of the day this June 17th, this Friday. We do so delightfully with Pete Peterson. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, the Brown Family Dean's Chair there, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. When we talk about the problems in the academy, Pepperdine School of Public Policy is the solution. Pete, happy Friday. Welcome back. And to you, Seth. Always good to be. Yeah, I, lo- I look and, forward to the, the Fridays. Week. I wake up in the morning and first thing when the when I it's I it's it's beautiful for me to have you and and it's beautiful what you're doing over there in California and really across the country. I know you travel a lot on a lot of the issues that you hold dear, and I want to talk to you about some of those. We're heading sure. we're heading into a weekend, uh, Pete. Uh, celebrating fathers, you pointed out something on your Twitter feed from Brad Wilcox. I'd love to talk to you about uh, in a few moments. Bill, when did we have Brad on? About a week ago. I think we had Brad on Mm. about a week ago. But before I do that, because California has been kind of ground zero for some of this, I had an experience today. I emailed you about it. I went to uh, what they call Tent City here in Phoenix, which is the um, homeless congregation um, in, in downtown Phoenix. I uh, it's been a while since I have visited um, homeless encampments, and uh, by that I mean a few years. Um, the friend I went with, he said it it looked like Beirut, it looked like Beirut yeah. on a bad day. Yeah. Pete, this uh, this thing in California um, is 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 getting some some attention, but here in Phoenix, in in Phoenix itself, we've seen a rise of over four hundred percent in the homeless population here. Yeah. It's 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 sad but it's not unsolvable. That's my right. sense. It's not un- is it solvable in Los Angeles? I believe it is and we have an example of at least one major city in California uh making actual positive strides against homelessness and that was uh San Diego mm-hmm. under the leadership of Kevin Falconer there, the Republican, who unfortunately uh, was not able to make it through the recall uh, election when he was uh, running against uh, Governor Newsom. Oh, that's right. In that first recall. That's right. That's right. Okay. That's right. Uh But he was someone that with, I think, both uh, creativity and courage uh, was able to lead a city that was suffering really significant challenges around homelessness uh, to be the only major city in the West that actually saw a decrease in their homelessness population. Now, he termed out last year, and from as what I understand, uh, even though these are technically nonpartisan offices, but a Democrat uh, from the city council has moved in uh, quite progressive and has begun rolling back some of the strides that Mayor Falconer made. And, of course, we are seeing the predictable results of that with an increase in the homelessness population there, uh, homeless population in San Diego. 
there seems to be a kind of misplaced understanding or misprioritized understanding of compassion from what I can tell. Uh, I've been paying attention to some of that. I've been paying attention to some of the stuff Schellenberger's been writing. I looked around at it uh, myself over the years and then, of course, today uh, going downtown. And uh, the the misplaced compassion is, you know, people don't want to, uh, shall we say, deprive the homeless of their liberty claims. I have to tell you, I've never seen less free people. I have never seen less Very free good. people imprisoned in the grips of their addiction and mental illness. Because you yeah. think you are free doesn't mean you are free any more than because you think you're Napoleon means you're Napoleon, Pete. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. Last week we hosted a conference here on campus with our friends at the Manhattan Institute, and I happened to be uh, moderating one of the panels that had uh, former Mayor Faulkner on the panel. And as we were discussing specifically this issue around homelessness, um, he made the very good point. This is a moral question yeah. and has to do with... Um, and, and this is what really brought him into the issue. He was not an, an expert in homelessness when he first ran for uh, mayor there, but he quickly got up to speed because he made those same kind of trips that you did today mm -hmm. through the homeless encampments and just saw that we are actually being cruel right. to the homeless right. That's uh, what I by the way that we are supposedly... Uh, enabling them. We are enabling and, their addiction and violence right. and mental health problems. We are enabling that's it. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I think that's... And that is cruel. And that I think that cruel. is. Yeah, no, I think it is too. Uh, I, th I, th I think it's cruel. And we haven't even talked about the violence that they commit against one another in these in the, uh, cop-free right. zones. There's a ton of sexual abuse and a ton of battery. Yep. And arson today, yep. I, I observed an arson take place. Yes. People call these quality of life crimes. They don't want to force all laws are about our quality of life all of them yeah. including our life yeah. and it's it's one of the saddest things to see and it feels like we're just hamstrung by some what 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 do we want to even call this pete some kind of inarticulable or institutionalized concept that no one knows how to battle against that doesn't allow us to do something about it. I mean, these are crimes. There are crimes against vagrancy. There are I mean, there are laws against vagrancy. There are That's laws right against uh, sleeping in public. Um, yep. We just refuse to enforce them, and I think that's wrong. Yeah, and I, I think it gets back to a concept that we discuss many times in our conversations, which has been proven true over and over again in American politics and policy, that concentrated benefits will always outweigh diffuse yep. obligations. Yep. And was as was proven by a remarkable series of stories in the San Francisco Chronicle a couple of years ago, uh, they called it the homeless industrial complex, ah. uh, that, that with these issues, there actually is a whole network of nonprofits and legal organizations that are funded in some instances by government funding and certainly other, other philanthropy that is built up around this problem uh, that is continuing to further these kinds of policies like Housing First, which is proven to be a failure. Um, the thought that you you respond to homelessness by providing homes sounds logical, but is anything but if you actually get to understand the problem. But there are a whole bunch of incentives around maintaining the status quo. And, of course, all to the end that we are 
really being cruel uh, to the least among us in America's cities. Pete, is the uh, is it an ideological thing that uh, comes out of I don't know some perverted view of some of the stuff that uh, Francis Fox Piven was writing about in the '60s to break the system, or is it uh, some kind of misplaced psychological? Uh, uh, a psychological effect on our politics that if if it involves policing or if it involves enforcement of community standards, we're against it. Is it civil libertarianism run riot and without any mm. moorings? How, what attributes the I, – I know some of these organizations. I know some of these legal centers. I know also who funds them. You do too. It begins with an S. What, but what, yes. yeah, but what, 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 animate, what is the animating factor here? Is it, is it all of it? Yeah, I think it's a mix of all of it, and what's really just so difficult about homelessness as a public policy issue is that it does take in a number of related issues from public safety. There certainly is uh, a set of issues that are new on the scene, like fentanyl, Mm -hmm. for example, Um, and uh, some of these housing approaches, which again, are being uh, pushed for the first time. Because they think it's an issue of, of affordability, right? That's the point on that one, on that that's discrete. Right. They and think it's unaffordable housing. That ain't the issue, but that's what they're saying. It, it it's okay. not. Okay. I mean, the the vast majority, if you go into homelessness encampments, the vast majority of people there, there are mental illness issues, yeah. and there are drug abuse yeah. issues, and then there are the both of them together. Yeah. And again, um, we... We, in some ways, are dealing with the deinstitutionalization of those who are um, suffering from mental illness, uh, and there's a, there was an argument for that in some instances, but we're dealing with the results of that. But then there are also some of these new drug-related issues yep. uh, that we're dealing with in these communities as well. And as I said, um, there there are these groups of organizations that are built around yep. maintaining the status quo. Yep, exactly right. Let's talk about Father's Day and fatherhood when we come back. Can we do that? That's actually a yeah, little, little bit of a part of this as well. Pete Peterson is our guest. He is the Dean and Braun Family Dean's Chair at Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Get ready for some alliteration here, folks. The website is publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Seth Leibson. He's Pete Peterson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Blessedly, we are uh, joined by Pete Peterson, rejoined by Pete Peterson. He is the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Uh, Pete, um, you tweeted this out. Uh, let me give out your uh, Twitter address because you have a very active feed, at Pete, the number 4CA, at Pete4CA. And uh, you're a fan of, I gather, Brad Wilcox's, no surprise. Yeah, yeah I am too. I've been yep. uh, reading and talking with him for years probably what is he the lead probably the lead researcher on issues having to do with fatherhood in america probably at least in the top sure. top top marriage in the family yeah. absolutely yeah. institute at university of virginia that's is, right uh, that's prolific. right yep. uh, this 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 should dominate every intro to political science uh class this this yeah. thing this finding fatherlessness is a better predictor of incarceration for young men than race, 
or family income growing up. Fatherlessness. Life without father is a hell of a hard life in this country, it turns out. Take it away. Right. Yeah, I mean, again, this is one of those things that uh, the late, great James Q. Wilson often said that uh, if it makes sense, it's probably true. Yeah, right. (laughs) uh, This is one of those things that while we can do all the uh, multiple regression analysis and the statistical quantitative research into all these issues uh, to take to get the person on the street and say uh, between a, a, a child who grew up in uh, a family with a father present and one without, which one do you think has a greater chance of uh, getting into trouble? Um, you know, most most would say. Uh, most would say the latter. So, um, you know, that really, again, is now being proven out in the kind of research that uh, Dr. Wilcox is doing at UVA. And uh, and once again, this really should be influencing also the conversations that we're having around uh, education and race in America as well. I mean, these, these are the kinds of things that, um, once again, even deracializing the particular question, the importance of family makeup in uh, the flourishing of our communities and in the preparation of active and engaged citizens um, is one that we can quantitatively prove, but we also just should understand that that's just straight up common sense. I want to return to that very point in a minute in the issue of fatherhood. Let me just tell the audience some of the findings real briefly. Um, You have double the chances. It's double the chances of uh, being incarcerated if you don't have a father present in your life. It's really quite incredible. But I want to come back to that in a minute. I want to ask you an interstitial question, Pete. You were bringing up, you know, race and crime and issues of fatherhood and family. Do you ever fear pushback or censoriousness when you speak on these cultural issues? You know, I I don't. Or people like um, me or, you know, on conservative or other talk radio. I mean, do you ever get put, do you ever worry about that or does it ever happen? It's not that I'm not concerned about it. Mm-hmm. But again, I think it's important that you quote the right sources. Yes, too. of course. I mean, right. as dean of a policy school, it's one thing to hold forth on your own personal beliefs and feelings, even if they're based in some degree of common sense. But at least on my Twitter feed, I try to focus and highlight research mm-hmm. and sound social science research that's being done to uh, to prove these things. Yeah. And uh, and again, as and I know Brad, we actually just had him out to campus a, a few weeks ago to speak. Um, you talk about a courageous scholar. He is that. Yeah. I mean, he not only... I mean, you're talking about on the campus at UVA, he's in a much different environment than I am here at Pepperdine. I get it. Yeah, I get it. He's he's touching on about every third rail you can find Mm -hmm. when it comes to the research he's doing on uh, family makeup and and policies related to the family and the raising of children. By the way, it's interesting uh, that these have become third rails or almost everything has become a third rail, isn't it? Yeah. 
Yeah, no, you're absolutely These right. Things These things weren't are... controversial in the 90s when we were first talking, when I was first talking about them. They weren't. You didn't have to think twice about it, really. Let me take yeah, a quick, can, I, let me take, can we pick up on that, yep. too? I want to do that, and Father, yeah. all right, we're just going to keep building, but I do have to take a quick <laughs> commercial break, Pete. If Oh, no, I'm wrong. We're good on it. We're good on it. All right, I'm wrong okay. about the break. I, I had my clock wrong. All right, yeah, so it's interesting how all of this has become all of these issues have become third rails, Pete. We never used yeah. to have to worry about talking about family formation, fatherlessness. Never. I mean, and we're now at a point where it's a third rail to criticize uh, pedal to the metal on transgender children. Transgender. Yeah. I mean, it's really weird. That's become a third rail. All of it has everywhere. We well, go, again, the- it's. It's all of a piece, right? I mean, um, there are some that are intentionally motivated by um, the the liberation theology, if you will, of uh, the 1960s and certainly before that. And so anything that hints at uh, tradition or family arrangements, um, you know, they are seeking to destroy and pull apart. Others, I think, are a little bit more well-intentioned to say, well, we don't want to unnecessarily uh, castigate or demean those that grew up in environments that quite far out of their control were um, were the kinds of places where there wasn't a, a, a father and mother present. At the same time, you know, And this is why I like to quote really good social science research. You can't dispute the data. Right. And so if we're going to have some ideological argument about, well, we don't want to make people feel bad and you're you're being puritanical and this is all tradition. All right. Fine. Maybe maybe that's some of my motivation. But let's just deal with the data that folks like Dr. Wilcox have brought forward and say, if we really care about these kids, and this is, I'm sensing now a line back to the earlier conversation about homelessness. Mm -hmm. If we really do care, then shouldn't we consider what the data is telling us around these policy issues? And maybe the answer is from a big sector of this society, no. Maybe they don't care about the data. It's just to them the right and compassionate thing to do. Data be damned. Consequences yeah. be damned. I mean, it is a version, Pete, this 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 is a version of, well, yeah, communism failed there and it failed there and Marxism failed there and failed there because it was all imperfectly tried, but we can do it right. better. It's a version of that here. You guys have it with yeah, Newsom. It, I, I my gosh, also, you, you, you are on ground zero for this stuff with your governor. Yeah, well, and, and I think you're, you're, you're also pulling apart another piece of this, which... Now, now I have to take... Now, okay, hold that. Okay. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's sew that piece together when we come back. Am I working with the metaphor rightly? Pete Peterson, now I have a quick commercial break. <laughs> I will be right back, as will Pete, and he's going to help us put it back together. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Pete Peterson is our guest. He's the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Pete, you were just going to say I was tugging at a thread when I was mentioning the versions of social policy we suffer through these days, particularly in California, kind of like what they say about Marxism. It has it was just it failed because it was imperfectly tried. We can do it better. I kind of sense Newsom is a little bit that way with the social policies. You guys labor under. But you were mentioning that I was pulling on a thread here that you were thinking about. 
Yeah, which is, well, then let's just be upfront about it and stop with this party or ideology of science okay. garbage. Okay. Right? I mean, if, if we're going to go with these very kind of emotive reasons for making policy decisions that we're seeing in places everywhere from homelessness to uh, K-12 education to various forms of, of family policy without addressing the research that we're seeing, um, then let's just be upfront about it and, and, and understand that a particular side of this conversation is just not willing to deal with the social science and what that's teaching us. And I, and, and I, obviously there are reasons both philosophical, personal, emotional, uh, that, that are a part of public policy that, you know, these moral senses that James Q. Wilson, uh, spoke so eloquently about. But as Wilson would also say, you know, let's, let's research and quantify these things as well. And if we decide to turn our backs on the research done by, Brad Wilcox, or the research that somebody affiliated with us here at the Policy School, Byron Johnson, yep. on, on faith-based initiatives in prison reform. Yep. If we're going to turn our backs on these uh, for emotive reasons, then let's at least acknowledge what we're doing. Um, but again, I think in so many of these instances, the social science research is bearing out what we all kind of know in our guts. Um, that this that this is common sense. I kind of vacillate between these two horns of this dilemma, Pete. Um, between is there an effort uh, in a certain mindset here that thinks the worse the better? There's an investment, in other words, in seeing failure uh, in mm-hmm. this society and in this country. On the one hand, and on the other, another academic. Uh, I think he was University of Pennsylvania was a Philip Reef who wrote the Triumph of the Therapeutic. Does that ring a bell? Yes. Where, yes. Where, 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 what you're saying is the case that where social research and science be damned, it's our feelings and 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 um, emotions that matter more, or 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 intentions even that matter more yes. than anything. Now I tend to think a little bit more. It's that I, that's where I tend to think, but it's hard for me to escape. The former thing once in a while, too. It's just hard for me to fully escape that there isn't some investment in making us look as bad as possible sometimes. Well, that certainly that certainly could be the case. Um, but as I think we also know from study of human nature and politics, there's also just explicit self-interest in yeah, some of these yeah, instances yeah. as well. And and that, that iron law <laughs> of... Uh, of politics and public policy that I mentioned before, uh, concentrated interests outweighing diffuse obligations, that uh, many of these issues that we care about and wonder why we can't get at common sense solutions, uh, they're oftentimes being surrounded uh, very closely by special interests that are uh, seeking to maintain out of their own interest the status quo. There, there, there's a third leg to that. That's you've, yep. I think that's the third leg, and I really do have to take a break in a second. This is our short segment. If you can, you can stay one more, and we'll. I can. Thanks. Yep. That's the third part. I'll just set it up as best I can. If I, if I'm thinking about it rightly, which is 
you get invested into the status quo or indolence on the uh, in in a part of this, and you create sort of a new normal, if you will. Uh, people become inured or numb uh, to this new normalcy as it's taking place, and then you add to that a media that kind of wants to aid in the silencing of the kinds of things you and I are talking about and the kinds of solutions required so that people at a certain level, I don't want to speak too broadly this way, but at a certain level, people think you have to live this. How we do live is how we must live, in other words, mm-hmm. is, is kind of what settles in. And I wonder if that's what plagues California. I mean, I don't get I'll, – I'll hit the break on this one, Pete, and we'll come back and have you respond if you don't mind. I don't get how you can look at the social destruction in certain places under certain ideological forms of governance, Newsom, for example – Gascon, for example, that kind of stuff, and keep voting these people in. I have no other explanation than that other one, which is numbness and censorship or shaming. All right, uh, you, that's a lot there. Uh, I'll let you unwind that. <laughs> You're the professor and the dean. Pete Peterson, dean of the public at uh, Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Pete Peterson has been our guest. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. So, Pete, um, I don't know if what I was saying made any sense. We kind of get used to a new normal. Uh, We become numb to the social destruction around us, thinking that that's just kind of the way it has to be with a compliant, um, in some sense, compliant uh, information industry media, if you will, that thinks anything that reeks of a conservative-oriented solution is the equivalent of, uh, you know, um, not to be talked about, intermention, uh, fill in the blank, and, 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 and thus we keep getting more of what we're getting and it's growing. Is, is there something to that, you think, too, or maybe not? Am I overdoing it a little? Well, I, I think it's a couple things, um, those that you outlined, but I also think it goes back to the lack of civic engagement yeah. on those uh, who um, are living in these communities. I was just looking back at the election results from 2020 that brought George Gascon into the uh, position of district attorney. Mm-hmm. And I would guess there are going to be a lot more people involved in the recall effort than there were in voting for him in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. And that it wasn't a very close election, but one of the unique things about that was in the primary, the incumbent district attorney, a woman by the name of Jackie Lacey, uh, won the primary by 300,000 votes. And between the primary and the general election, uh, we obviously had that summer, and uh, the mayor Eric Garcetti of Los Angeles, who had started as an active supporter of Jackie Lacey and endorsed her initially, switched his endorsement. And that in, that step, along with some others, and sort of the tide of the times that we all remember from the summer and into the fall of 2020, uh, swung against Jackie, uh, who's a Democrat, um, but was not as far left on these issues as Gascon was, and Gascon won with certainly less uh, than half of the registered voters of L.A. County uh, voting in that election. So I think 
I think that's it. And because many of these elections depend on low turnout municipal, even in big city or counties, in this case, elections, once again, the organized interests benefit from low turnout elections as long as they can get out their base uh, to uh, to support the candidates or causes that they that they're vested in. By the way, Pete, California, it's not unique, but it's rare. It has this top two system. Does that contribute to any of it? Let me ex- – you want me to explain or you want it? You could probably do it better if you don't mind. Sure. Well, I mean, top two um, is essentially uh, the election that moves – that is separate from what you might call a standard party primary. Right. Uh, where uh, a candidate from the Democrat and Republican Party or the two major parties right. would have a representative in this. All candidates go into uh, onto the ballot, so to speak, and whoever the top two vote-getters are uh, move on to the general election. And, and now, I'm wondering that if that really causes... So, does, yeah, how does that work out? Yeah, so, uh, again, the idea was that you would be able to, in some of these far-left regions, that you would, as opposed to getting one Democrat in in a deep blue area against a Republican, where you could almost guarantee the further left person would win the party primary, and they would then generally win the general election, that at least you'd have an option of that same party who could be hoped for to be more moderate. Now, We've had this system now for about a decade or so in California, and certainly we're not seeing much moderation happening in the California legislature or in almost any of the statewide offices. So, it's, uh, it's, Yeah, I mean, to, to wit, Dianne yeah. Feinstein, I think in her last election, which would have been 18, maybe 2018, I, I think she ran against a Democrat. Yes, she did. I don't think she had a Republican opponent. I don't think she did because of the top two. No, system. that's right. And and once again, even out of this uh, last primary season, which uh, occurred about 10 days ago, oh, right. um, we're going to see several of these legislative races, um, certainly the state legislative races, where there are two Democrats running against one another. You want to make a prediction about Newsom's reelection chances? Yeah, I mean, they've got to be seen as high. Um, The Republican who did make it through, and so it's not to say that even in the top two, you can't have a Democrat on and Republican. So we got it this Uh, time. We got a Republican to run. That's right. So Brian Dolly is a solid Republican candidate, state legislator, um, but from about as far north in California as you can get, has no name recognition. And this is the second piece, back to your question in the segment that kicked off the segment. It has to do with the dependence on low turnout elections, but it also has to do with uh, do voters trust an alternative? Uh It's one thing to not like the person Uh that, Uh that you're voting for, and that may cause you not to vote at all on that particular position. It's another thing to then trust an alternative. And I think we're in this in-between time right now in California politics where we are seeing this fracturing of the Democratic Party. We are seeing increasing distrust of the progressive policy regime. But not enough people are seeing a Republican candidate that they can trust. Um, And again, 
politics is not just about getting people to vote for you. It's also about making sure they don't vote for the other person. That's right. And in that, I think Californians are getting more and more cautious about the direction the, the Democratic Party is leaning. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they will vote for a Republican. Yeah, I mean, they might move. I mean, they might just yeah. move. And, and, and the statistic have. I can't get out of my mind, i got to run here, but the statistic I can't get out of my mind, San Francisco has a percentage, has a Republican uh, registration rate of 7%. 7%. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Pete, you really earned your living today. I mean, you ate your Wheaties. <laughs> I loved our conversation. You, you covered a lot of territory. Thank you, sir. Well, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Pete Peterson, he is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. If you are looking forward to or interested in a career in public policy, which I hope you are, please look at Pepperdine. As I say, we talk a lot about the problems in the academy. Pepperdine is uh, the real solution. Pete Peterson, thank you. Publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back with some closing thoughts. Thank you for spending some of your afternoon. Thank you for spending some of your week with us. Uh, it's been a delight. Uh, very happy Father's Day to everyone. Take a look at Brad Wilcox's research, uh, if you want, at Brad Wilcox IFS on Twitter, or uh, you can just go to um, uh, the University of Virginia Project on Marriage and the Family to see what he is showing. And I'll just give you, I think there's a lot of statistics, but I think the most interesting one is that fatherlessness is a better predictor of incarceration for young men than race and family income growing up, or family income, race or family income. You want to talk about the problems of crime in this country? You want to talk problems of drug abuse, other abuse? We're talking about what Michael Novak once called the single best Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, a two-parent intact family. You know, it's interesting. You have to make these connections. We go on a war against toxic masculinity, and then we're surprised to find that Boys want to become girls and parents want to turn them into that. In an odd way, you know, we're back to C.S. Lewis, aren't we? We make men without chests and expect something of them they can no longer do or be expected to perform. We castrate and bid the gildings be fruitful. These things matter. These things are connected. These things have results. And they also have, um, they also have catalysts and impetuses. Where do you think this comes from? Where do you think all of this comes from? It's not new. It's just being newly tried here. If you think it's not new, go read Chapter 2 of the Communist Manifesto. The disappearance of the family, the vanishing of the family is Karl Marx's phrase. The vanishing of the family is what they sought, and it's sought today. Resist it. Have a great weekend. And until Monday, God bless you all. Class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.